Welcome to episode seven of Three Security Buddies. I'm your host, Matthias Brudy, and I'm joined by Paul Carrot. Howdy, Paul. How's it going? Pretty good. I just started some PTO. Awesome. Good for you. Bad for me. And the almighty Robert Clark. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. How's it going? I'm having fun. It's sunny today. I thought it was going to be rainy. So I started my day by taking the kids to the playground and they enjoy it. So it's been a great morning so far. How awesome. about yours? Pretty great. Sat outside, had a coffee. The dogs chased a squirrel. It's a normal Saturday morning. As it should be. As, as long as we're not working, it's a great day, right? Um, I have some sort of follow up from last week. Uh, well, actually not last week, a few weeks ago. So currently the U.S. has elevated uh, ransomware to the same level of terrorism, which I mean, you can argue whether it's a good thing or not. But it, it seems like mostly it's just a, it's a statement that ransomware is getting noticed and it's becoming a, a big pain in the butt for a lot of people and a lot of businesses and governments and infrastructure. So I think it's the right move from governments to start paying a lot more close attention and setting some teams to deal with this? Yeah, as I understand it, this is this is intended to be like a, a shift in the organizational strategies the government uses to deal with this. So like this isn't in a statement that they're going to go and send like elite counterterrorism units against ransomware gangs. It's more a here's how we're going to structure investigations. Here's how we're going to data share. And we're going to more effectively like coordinate across the many branches of government to like deal with this. And that seems like a net win to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, literally, from what I read, I was reading the, the Reuters article, and it just seems to be like, hey, we're going to actually organize at both the local, federal, you know, and state levels to actually deal with this issue, which seems to be pretty uh, distributed across all levels and across all agencies. I mean, we, we went from uh, oil pipelines to meet companies to, you know, go know what comes next. I just think it's the right the right decision from, from the government to start organizing and, and taking this thing, I guess, for lack of a better word, more serious as it should be. Like it is it is a serious threat. Um as ransomware starts taking hospital, it's one thing if it takes computers from, you know, billing, but like what would happen if it actually takes uh things that are keeping people alive, you know, like it, it, it does become somewhat of, I think the moment it crosses that line, it would have become chaotic and I'm, I'm happy that it's hopefully starting to take action before it gets to that. I, th I, I guess I have two quick thoughts on that. The first one is I actually believe ransomware crossed that line multiple times in the last five years and the collective governments around the world kind of didn't care. Um, I think they cared when it hit a major oil pipeline where there was major economic impact. Hospitals have been going down a ransomware reliably monthly for years now. NHS had a huge, a huge problem with, uh, I forget which one it was. It was one of the earlier ones, uh, like 2016, spread through huge numbers of healthcare trusts, which is like the segmentation that they have within different healthcare divisions. Knocking, knocking hospitals offline, delaying everything other than emergency surgeries. Like it was bad. NCSC in the UK, the National Cybersecurity Center, did bits and pieces. But uh, so, firstly, I think healthcare has been impacted a bunch. And, and we didn't really see movement, at least of this type, until it was a, like a major economic impact. Arguably, not the, I'm not sure I'm passing a value judgment there. I'm just pointing out that I think 
I think the government valued the economic economic impact far more than, say, like threat to individual life. That is fair. And to your point, last year, 2020, the, one of the biggest hospital chains in the United States was actually hit by ransomware as well. I think they own like 300 hospitals or something like that across all of the U.S. and they also were hit. Uh, my, my only point was that I don't, as far as I know, it was not hitting like sensitive, like life support systems. I assume those are either independent, offline or not connected to uh, to networks I could have been, but if to your point, I, I think I think you made a fair point. Like clearly, government have not taken action because there's been many very big cases of ransomware, regardless of lies were taken or not. It could have been taken. My my second point was um, around the asymmetry of these types of attacks and whether or not any particular government deciding to be upset about this style of attack affects that type of asymmetry. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we covered the Russian the Russian keyboard stuff, right? And the idea that many, uh, many, so maybe not everyone realizes this. Most ransomware attacks are not actually the result of some super wicked good hackers writing brand new ransomware and figuring out how to go and deploy it. There is an entire economy of software builders who build what is, quite frankly, ransomware as a service. You can turn up with a credit card or some other type of payment mechanism. And just like if I was going to go and deploy some computers in a cloud, I can turn up or actually let's take a slightly better example. If I was going to go and stand up a CRM in something like Salesforce, I would turn up, there'd be a nice portal. I'd put in some information about my company and the, the number of employees I had and like click a few things and then up would come a lovely dashboard and it would tell me how many of my users have onboarded and, you know, Tele- telemetry about what's going on in my system and how many people are interacting with it. Ransomware of the type that is n- impacting whole countries is the same experience. There is a group. You, The three of us today could pool some money and decide we were going to go go ransom some target, right? And we wouldn't write a single line of code ourselves. We would go to one of these ransomware as a service purveyors. We would put in our target information. We put in a few other bits and pieces and it would attempt to exploit the targets. And maybe we would get involved in some spear phishing or something to open the door. But this is a commoditized economy. Now, that, I think, is where things become interesting. The point I was making is, or let me reframe it as a question. Given given what I said about this being a, like this whole random economic boom that comes out of areas of the world that are hard to go touch from a geopolitical point of view, this is why there are, this is to come back to what I was saying, this is why those those platforms won't infect things with Russian keyboards uh, or Cyrillic keyboards because they just don't want the hassle of, you know, they don't want to accidentally shut on their own doorstep. So like they have this thing, they build it so that they like make sure they poo far away from their doorstep and then nobody really cares. At least nobody, you know, who's going after them in a severe way. Do you think this change from positioning in the U.S. government materially materially affects the asymmetry we see here like are, are they going to bring more balance to the problem i i was reading the news that apparently you know uh, u.s president was trying to meet with the russian president a few others to sort of deal the ransomware problem so i think it has reached a, an escalation point where uh political agendas are starting to have to deal with this issue regardless of the size. I completely agree with you that this is mostly random as a service and you have a bunch of crazy people paying for it and trying to make money. And 
my understanding that this literally works like any sort of software as a service where they take a, a, a percentage cut of the ransom and that's how they actually pay besides you having to pay them, uh, which is very interesting uh, business model, regardless of being criminal. But if you think about it, how governments, when they care about like the drug and the arms and the similar issues within the, in the dark markets, they went and they destroyed almost every single huge dark market. I mean, new ones pop up, but they, they do a relatively good job of like continuing to take them down. I have a feeling that that is where it's coming, where they're not longer going to go for the small fish. They're going to try to go for the big players, infiltrate, destroy, take over, and try to disrupt the business enough where it finds somewhat of a balance. I think, right, I, I don't know enough of what the governments are doing or not, but I, from what I read, it seems that they're only trying to tackle the small fish, the, the, the little guy who goes there and pays for the service instead of, saying, hey, you know, why don't we just take down this machinery to begin with? So, yeah, another one could potentially pop up, but if you continue to do so in somewhat of a good basis, you're going to potentially reduce the number of ran ransomware or you're going to make them go even deeper and not be able to provide services. But in order for that to happen, uh, I think, uh, the pol going back to my first statement, the political arena has to be there. Like, uh, there are some countries that are... Well, helping by not doing anything, just looking to the other side and allow them to, you know, like you say, like do your business as long as you don't poo-poo in my yard. Those countries need to take somewhat of a statement and start saying, okay, like maybe if you get too big, you got to suffer and you got to pay the price. Until that happens, I, I, don't, I don't see how they can truly and effectively shut this down and at a level that, that is controllable. I don't think it's going to go away you're going to have small capital units that can write their own code and can do ransomware. And those are going to be very difficult to get because there's like two or three people with targeted attacks. But if you can massively disrupt the business, I think that's going to help a lot. Actually, I guess I want to preface this with a statement of this fundamentally touches deeply on geopolitics, a uh, topic on which I am ill qualified to truly understand. So let's take it as read that everything I say is filtered through the lens of my own naivete and my own belief that tech people know the answers to things. Uh, I suspect that that's not actually the case and that part of this game is like high level geopolitics involves experts who know far more than I do about how you pressure governments into doing things you want them to do. So like ultimately that is the answer here, right? It's like to fight that asymmetry, you need to pressure governments that are harboring people doing things you don't want to stop doing that or at least reduce the amount they do it. And there's a some set of levers that are available for that. And when you pull those levers and what the unintended and intended consequences of those levers are is tricky to understand, especially for someone like myself. Um, but certainly like uh, on risky business, um, like Patrick Gray and Adam Boileau have for quite some time advocated for the idea that governments have offensive cybersecurity arms, uh, usually in their military, and that there may be times that it is appropriate to, as they say, unleash the hounds on actors that are deemed to have crossed lines at certain levels. Now, there's obviously a lot of interesting ethical questions around when that happens, and especially, at least within the United States, what the legality of doing that in some cases is, uh, in, in terms of who's allowed to go after who. But it is an interesting idea to talk about, hey, can you reduce this asymmetry through either actively attacking 
the people who are perceived to have done this stuff or by using sanctions or other more traditional political machinations to try and bring pressure upon the governments to say, hey, you guys have crossed the line. Like may maybe it's OK that you ransomware some poorly protected like steel mill, but it's not OK to ransomware a hospital or whatever that no that, that line is deemed to be. In general, you end up enforcing interactions between countries are ultimately mediated by like agreed upon norms, right? And when someone transgresses those norms, you're in some fashion punished, be it ostracization from the wider political community, um, like direct sanctions or something of that nature. And hypothetically, that's what works. Now, obviously, like we could argue for a long time about how well that works and what how long it takes and whether or not some countries even care about it. Uh, but I think that's probably outside the topic of this podcast. So let's take it as read that that's just the way people try and do it. Here's the problem with saying, cool, well, the U.S. government or other big governments have uh, huge, huge, huge cyber warfare capabilities. Why don't they bring them to bear on these targets? Most, most of the world's, I guess, top tier, fully state affiliated actors. So people, you know, good civil servants. The tools that they have in the box and not, you know, what we're, what we're not talking about here is like sending in the Marines. What we're talking about is the fact that like the tools that are in the box are all zero days. They're all super, super expensive. They're also super, super obvious once they've been used. These are espionage tools. They're generally not warfare tools. And if they're warfare tools, they're day zero warfare tools. They are the the, the stealth bombers of um of years gone by, right? They're the things that go in first to do damage and lay groundwork for other stuff. But once you've gone in, more so than, you know, in the physical realm, you basically burn these things. So uh, when it comes to um, use in espionage, cases are very carefully constructed and coordinated, even in the case where Five Eyes, are, you know, might be sharing understandings of certain bits of research, it's very clear who's doing what to who where. What you can't do is go burn these critical, possibly systemic zero days against ransomware groups that could pretty trivially set up thing, you know, set up their own honeypots to start capturing this type of stuff. It's also really dangerous to do this in places where other state actors might observe it. There are whole arms of various governments around the world that are dedicated to going and tracking the cyber operations of other governments around the world. And capturing their zero days and particularly doing so in a discreet way that allows you to go and start your own counter cyber espionage programs. Super, super interesting. You know, this is part of the reason that the F-22 in the US, which we're already talking about retiring, has never seen any real combat because it's super clever and it does a bunch of really interesting things. And the ELINT opportunities, the electronic um, intelligence gathering opportunities that actually deploying it in any real theater opens to the uh, to adversaries is actually a really big risk like when you have these expensive things you use them very very sparingly so the only other the only other technical so like when people go oh well why doesn't the u.s government just go hack people I'm like because they'll burn through all those every days in a week like it, it broad spectrum warfare is not what these things are built for and if you are broad spectrum it's because you're going to war and you're taking someone's power grid down before you go and do the the next step of a kinetic engagement like there is no there is no cyber warfare equivalent of a laser guided bomb right 
It's relatively cheap. It's relatively standard. Um, I use a bit of extra intelligence to target it, but like it's that doesn't exist. It's all like new, special, and expensive. So the only the only thing that governments have there, and there are governments have done this, then is basic things like DDoS, which is kind of funny. Um, watching one government like DDoS a ransomware group and things, but it's also trivial to sidestep, especially given that most of these ransomware ransomware groups exist in you know onion routing networks and stuff like that. So, from a philosophical point of view, Paul, I agree. From a like scratch on the idea a little bit, like government, you know, I think this laser guided bomb analogy makes sense. Like, U.S. government likes to be able to drop those almost anywhere, and they can drop them from drones and whatever, and they're cheap and they're well understood. And doing so doesn't disclose a capability other than the fact that they were in the space at the time. There is no cyber warfare equivalent of that that I'm aware of. I, I'm not sure I agree. So I agree with you for government on government action, but like there is ample evidence that ransomware gangs are in no way like advanced. They don't th keep their things patched. They don't operate with good opsec. Like so, I think like I'm I'm not disputing that uh, a current capability set might exclusively involve these sorts of large scale weapons you're talking about. But I don't necessarily agree that that precludes the ability to develop cheaper things if they just determine that they want to start going after actors that are of lesser caliber. Uh, and then I think that's fair. Yeah. So are you are you saying, Paul, that basically you know if we start up a ransomware unit, like set up a a hacking team, and literally start taking action? I mean, it doesn't have to be exploiting, or it doesn't even have to know about any of the uh, as. Robert mentioned, you know, highly sophisticated zero days that you don't want to exploit because you're saving those for an actual warfare. Uh, now, my problem with this, Robert, is wouldn't for some actors, some countries, if you target these people bad enough, wouldn't that be considered an act of war for them? And wouldn't this necessarily escalate things at a geopolitical level? And that is why a lot of these actions are not taken to avoid, you know, like triggering something even bigger over yeah. something that you somewhat can control. Now, if you ask me, what we need here is we, we need uh, a Phineas Fisher style uh, villain uh, or Robin Hood, whatever you want to name it, uh, that actually goes, takes action, and takes them down. And, I think the Punisher you know, might be a better. <laughs> uh, uh, oh yeah, there we go. Uh, we need a Punisher. We need a Punisher like that. Uh, that if if you want to not take government responsibility, if you want to make it that it's still things get done and things don't necessarily escalate. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that's, that should happen. I, I don't get me wrong. I do not want to get into that arena, but in the event of something like that, like you need those type of actors that are neither for one side nor the other one. And quote unquote, they're in the name of the, you know, the goodness of the world uh, that, that they take action. Otherwise I think, even if you have a team that is not using zero days, that is not, it could it, it could unintentionally generate an escalation that it will end up in a cyber warfare or in an actual warfare that it might not be uh, it might not be something worth getting to. And to Paul's point, I don't think I, I'm personally I'm not a geopolitical expert by any means. I know enough to realize that probably some of these actors and some of these 
people doing this have friends in power and are arts corrupted. So probably when you touch one of these people, you're touching somebody that is friends with somebody that it might be able to trigger this type of escalations because I have a feeling that if these people are making millions and millions of dollars, somebody in some place is corruptly taking a cut in order for them. So that when you take the cut from that person, that unintentionally might actually generate an escalation that you don't really want. And I assume that our intelligence uh, units are smart enough to know these kind of things and avoid taking these things down and they deal with the issue one at a time in order not to escalate. That, that, that's my movie-like theory, if you want to name it, that, uh, and my very naive understanding of geo, you know, intelligence and geopolitical that I think why these things are not massively taken down and just be done with. So to pull these two parts of the conversation together then, I think, you know, what Paul's saying is, sure, we might not have the equivalent of a laser-guided bomb, like the slightly lower confidentiality capabilities to go and prosecute uh, targets, but we could do. I think that's super valid. And there's actually space in the, you know, commercial realm to actually go do some of that as well. Um, The obvious analogy is things like uh, private security contractors, right? U.S. pays people with guns to go and solve problems in other places where they don't want to get directly involved. There probably is a good cyber analogy of that. The the second part, Matthias, uh, you know, you were you were describing escalations in country and those types of challenges. I think those are absolutely things that people will be sensitive to. I couldn't speak to the corruption angle, but um, I think the general principle of hackback in general, the concern there is always around attribution. Um, it is still very easy for you to masquerade as being someone else, for you to cause a redirection or, or whatever else, like to uh, fully appear. And, you know, the Russians are not not the Russian... Russian military doctrine uh, follow, has a principle called Maskarovka, I think I pronounced that terribly. But basically, like uh, Russia and a number of other places have entire doctrines around confusing the enemy by providing faulty intelligence signals and providing false impressions. Um, and I think that the cyberspace has traditionally been really easy for that, which is why um, why any form of, of hackback would have to be intelligence-led because you have to get across a really difficult threshold to understand that the target you're prosecuting is actually actually the person you want to, or actually the organization you want to go after. Interesting set of conversations for a, for a follow-up. Now let's talk about more uh, no, not so uh, warlike things and mo- move into more friendly and cool and techy stuff. So Apple WWDC happened this week uh, on, a, on a bunch of interesting software, a bunch of, in- no, sadly not, not, not hardware. I cannot buy a new laptop and spend my money. I was, I was ready with all my dollar bills, you know, to tell them to shut up and give me a new piece of hardware, but I couldn't. Maybe in a couple of months, a poll. Hopefully um, so. Yeah. Anyways, uh, they actually came up also with very interesting new uh, security features or frameworks, etc. I think it would be interesting if we, we talk about them. Um, I was thinking about the one that actually caught my attention. It's uh, the one that I think they call Move Beyond Passwords. And they actually did a presentation upon it, which basically translates to iCloud 
keychain, web app, and keys, like having a, a public and a private key. But I am not an expert in any of these. So I know, Paul, you are the crypto expert among us. So uh, can you explain it to me? What are they actually trying to do? Sure. So I think probably the first thing to note is the FIDO Alliance a while ago created a specification called web authentication. Web authentication is a method of being able to do like origin bound credentials where the server has no secret keys, right? So like in a traditional login password setup, it's a, it's effectively a shared key ultimately in the end, right? Like you have a password, that password, you drive a, 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 a hash from it in some fashion, usually via something like Scrypt, Bcrypt, you know, PBKD of two, whatever. Uh, and at the end of it, then you do a comparison in the database and if they match, they let you in. A web authentication model is that you have a asymmetric key locally and you send a public key to the server and then the public key sends a challenge. You sign the challenge using that, like using your private key and it can validate it based on the public key it has. It has. Because of the origin bound nature, which is to say that like, I know that I this key was enrolled at this website or using this unique identifier if you're doing something like a... Uh, like an application, like a, like an iOS app or an Android app, then you can ensure that the app, like you will never ever sign a challenge unless it comes from the place you expect it to come from. Like this is an incredibly phishing resistant model. Apple was actually a laggard in this, in, in adopting this on the iOS and macOS sides. So Chrome supported this, I'm not even sure when, but it's been quite some time. But Apple didn't support this uh, until iOS 13.3. And they have support for NFC tags. They have support for all sorts of things at this point. Uh, but this new feature, the move beyond passwords, is a, a play with using platform authenticators. With web authentication, it has a few concepts, one of which is that you can have security keys. And security keys are like, you know, like a YubiKey can support it. And YubiKeys can have NFC. They can connect over USB. They can connect over Bluetooth. There's all sorts of mechanisms by which you can have them connect. But platform authenticators are the same thing just built into your platform. So you can say like, oh, Instead of having a separate security key, I want you to generate it in software, although potentially backed by hardware like a secure enclave or things of that nature. And I want uh, to use that instead of a physical token. So the advantage of that, of course, is that like if I'm using a platform authenticator on my phone, I can log in without having an extra key. The disadvantage is that key cannot be used on my Mac. It can't be used on my iPad. It can't be used on my like anything else, uh, it doesn't matter what, what I'm trying to do. I, I have to enroll an additional key to log in on any of those other devices. Apple is leveraging some of their ecosystem to accomplish a new thing here, which is to say that a while ago they built iCloud Keychain. So not all parts of iCloud are end-to-end, -end, but iCloud Keychain is end-to-end -end encrypted so that like Apple has no access to that data, genuinely has no access to that data, as opposed to promises they won't look, which is a different statement. Using that iCloud keychain mechanism, what they have done with this move beyond passwords, pass key concept, is allow syncing of WebAuthn platform authenticators across devices. So you enroll on your iPhone and it syncs to your iPad and your Mac and you can use those platform authenticators and everything just works. And like, that's a really powerful offering because it takes away a few of the disadvantages that WebAuthn actually does have. Namely, recovery is problematic because you can lose a security key and unless you have a backup security key, now no one can log in and no one can recover for you. Uh, like short of some really like 
labor-intensive out-of-band process that you have to engage in with the provider. And also it makes it so that like you don't have to worry about what it looks like across your suite of devices. So this is a really cool concept, but it's still not quite enough. Like it's very good for anyone who's entirely bought into the Apple ecosystem. But Apple left this as a, a preview, actually. So like they've they've explicitly said you have to activate this as a developer preview, and they don't want you to be using production keys and other things because they're trying to demonstrate what this is. This suggests to me that Apple is looking to have a solution that's going to work, uh, that's going to allow syncing outside of their ecosystem. They, they recognize the need. If they can do that, then this will be truly compelling. Uh, as is, this is extremely nice, and I would absolutely use it, but I'm still going to have to have separate security keys and additional enrollment to make sure it works everywhere for me. If you see in in the new macOS, they in in this in the settings now they have a password uh, section. They there's I think they're they're trying to become iCloud Keychain uh, a first class citizen on its own, like its own app potentially. I mean, you already have a, a, an app for it, but like. Given a lot more mainstream, we will get into another topic about how they actually do verification codes later. My my two comments here is that yes, you you have the problem of not being of the problem of on of being Apple only, which for Apple that might not be a problem. They, you know they're 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 known for having you know FaceTime and Messenger are Apple only, and like now FaceTime came out with a potential solution to join from. Uh, from a web, so you could jump from a, a non-Apple computer or, or mobile device, but still you cannot start it. I assume that by all means they could expose iCloud Keychain as a web app and do what one password does, and it will work, right? Like if you have a Windows app or if you have an Android app, you would. There, there's nothing them stopping them from allowing other non-Apple devices to 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 download and authenticate with. The password. I mean, at the end of the day, iCloud Keychain, if you think about it, it's a little bit kind of like one password, right? Like you still have, whether you authenticate into third-party apps in a secure way, you still have to authenticate to iCloud Keychain using a password or the six-digit PIN or whatever you use in your mobile. I mean, that's, that is the weakest link in the chain. Like it, once you actually know that password, an attacker could easily get access to your keys. Right by, by being able to access your iCloud keychain, regardless of those two issues, I think this is this is great. This is the right step into a passwordless world, world in a in a good way. I I agree with Apple that there are some sacrifices that are being made from a hardware perspective, but those sacrifices provide benefits, and to your point, they also provide some constraints. I would just like to see what Apple does in the, in the next two to three years and whether it decides to become, on this specific case, more of a service provider, like it's doing with FaceTime, where it's allowing non-Apple devices into the ecosystem, uh, at least in a limited way, to allow people to be able to, to use this strong authentication across other devices. The, the one thing that I also found interesting, and we can actually get now into this topic, is that on top of doing this, they also provide iCloud Keychain now also is going to support verification codes, which I think those these two things added up together uh, make iCloud Keychain a very interesting uh, solution uh, for, for authentication uh, moving forward uh, as, a, as a single place of having both, you know, Web I mean, assuming that the applications actually start supporting it like across 
the ecosystem. I mean, it, it still requires all of your providers to support this, but assuming they do, and assuming they also uh, allow you to have a second factor authentication, this this is this becomes pretty interesting. I have not seen, and you guys can correct me, anything on the verification keychain area, anything that says that they're going to support support push authentication. I only saw something very interesting that they're going to have domain binding for the uh, TOTPs, like the SMS versions of the TOTPs, which I think is great. So basically, if you do an at domain and then you provide the, uh, the, the, uh, the TOTP over an SMS, iOS is, and Mac are only going to allow you to use or automatically paste that into the specific domain, which it will effectively reduce phishing somewhat. But I mean, people still can copy paste it or, or get the message, etc. right? I think it's, it's in large part a, a big step forward. Um, some of the privacy-preserving stuff that you were just getting into I think is interesting. The broad-scale adoption of, of uh, WebAuthn across the Apple ecosystem is great. I think uh, that most of what they're doing is very standards compliant. Um, I don't understand the, the archival in um, iCloud Keychain versus normal WebAuthn. You know, normally I expect in a public-private system um, for my private keys to kind of originate on something remote from from the actual system, something separate that I own, um, and then I send them the public key. So doing this with this concept of the private key somehow living elsewhere or, or being able to be derived because this system is supposed to be fully recoverable um, if I don't have any Apple of my any of my Apple devices makes me slightly wary. But I'm sure clever maths will ensue and... I won't understand it and I'll ask Paul if it makes sense and he will he will sigh and, and, and rub his forehead and then he will tell me all about how it works. Well, you still need your iCloud password to recover it, right? Like that's how you will recover it. I don't think you can recover it without knowing anything. Right. Yeah, so like the, the concern and the, the thing I will say, I I remember learning about but do no longer remember the details of. And so I take this as the uh, somewhat lossy rec- recollection that it is, but like the iCloud keychains end-to-end system is such that as long as you have one device and you're adding another device, you do approvals across the devices, and then it can just I mean, it creates the pairing the pairing binding and tra- uh, transfer stuff through. However, as Rob pointed out, one of the assertions is you can recover even if you lose all your devices. It is my understanding that that recovery requires the purchase or obtaining of another Apple device. You cannot recover it off of Apple stuff. So you have to like say you lose say you only have an iPhone and you lose your iPhone entirely. When you provision a new iPhone and you log into iCloud, one of its components will be, hey, do you want to enable iCloud Keychain? At which point it will pull down the wrapped escrowed copy that will be encrypted under a local password. And that local password is your actual, uh, It's I believe it's just the pin or complex password you've set for your phone itself, like your previous phone. So like that's what uh, Matthias was saying when he said like it kind of it can go fall back all the way to a six digit code. Um, which has got, and I think that's some... that's what makes me uncomfortable, right? It's the, the the base primitive, the base primitive, as in the brass tacks. If the 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 thing I need to understand is not of the same strength as a normal private key in a typical web authentic type system. Yeah, so like it is potentially capable of. It's potentially possible to recover a escrowed iCloud keychain that includes a nice elliptic curve private key with less effort than trying to guess that private key, of course, right? Because obviously there's a lot less passwords to guess. 
Now, there's a lot of protections in that model, right? Like there's an Auth and Auth Z component to being able to gain access to the user's iCloud account in the first place. There's a um, there's like presumably probably retry limits enforced at the secure enclave level for like how many different times you can try this stuff. But like we've seen those things bypass before. So like it is fair to say that while it may be more protected than a single six digit number would indicate, it is okay to be skeptical because the complexity of the system defies easy analysis. And that in and of itself is a, is a weakness. I was criticizing it, but at the same time, I did mention like convenience, right? Like, I think this is a balance between UX and security and say, okay, we get enough security that it makes you feel comfortable as a consumer, maybe not a company trying to protect production access, but like as a consumer with normal applications, it gives you a stronger way to authenticate to these apps that are not easily fishable. And you make some sacrifices from, to your point, Robert, not having a hardware token that is outside the system, et cetera, in, in order to get convenience and ease of use. I think that trade-off for most common users, it will be a huge security improvement at the and not too much loss of security, right? Like they already use iCloud chain with username and passwords. So that issue is there already. I mean, most of the use cases for these people are not going to be people that use YubiKeys to authenticate. It's going to be people and mom and pops that use an iPhone and they want to protect and they don't want to get fish in their bank account. They don't want to get fish in their like, you know, shopping accounts, et cetera. So when you look at it from that perspective, I, I think that the UX and the security sacrifices that you make are, are in the right direction. I mean, I think I agree. What I think is interesting is I cannot wait for, I mean, we mentioned 1Password last week. I cannot wait for 1Password to actually implement exactly something like this. But yeah, I have to install a plugin, but I'm probably going to have support for everything else and every other device. And I, I am a paid customer, so I, I would definitely like to see other providers to actually start supporting web at the end in, in this, in this quote-unquote software way, which has some sacrifices, but hey, I wouldn't mind using this instead of a username and password for many of my accounts are not sensitive enough that I so can. So we're, we're rabbit-holing a bit, So, but I will, I will note that for 1Password to implement this such that they could sync asymmetric keys across would require either them loading those asymmetric keys into the keychain on macOS dynamically and then removing them when they're done because they don't trust them to be there or whatever, or else requires new APIs from Apple. Right now, WebAuthn requires those keys to be resident in keychain on, on Safari. And I don't, and so Firefox would also require them loaded into its NSS store. And so 1Password would need a way to interface with that. And Chrome, I believe, uses keychain as well. So like there are actually serious challenges with using WebAuthn and 1Password right now. The APIs are effectively simply not there. Well, maybe they will get there. I hope so. I hope that they actually open the specs for other competitors to also provide. Or I think they could, you know, like you, you mentioned yourself, right? They could easily, well, they could potentially like hack their way through the iCloud keychain. Yeah. Oh, well, I was, I was trying to dream. Thanks for killing my dream, uh, Paul. Well, I, I think it's important to talk about those things. It's, it's interesting to say, you know, hey, here's the thing we want to do. And then you realize just how much the platform is giving these vendors. Like the reason why Apple can do this is they have so many pieces all together already. Like the reason why 1Password can't is because they're, they're hooking in at an edge that doesn't allow that interop. And we should have discussions about what it looks like to, like whether or not that interop is desirable, right? Like there's good ideas, like it would be interesting to have it. There's also consequences. Like if the statement is 
third-party applications can, through a public API, inject dynamically uh, alternate keys. I can potentially think of serious problems with that approach. Like we'd have to think about what that really looks like. So, quick question. I mean, this is this is still over HTTP. So, wouldn't a Safari plugin or Firefox plugin or a Chrome plugin still allow one password to, if they wrote a plugin, to hook themselves, get the request, and you know, sign the challenge, return the challenge? I, I, it seems to me that if 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 you have the APIs in any of these browsers to actually inject or or interact with with HTTP requests, you, you should be able to implement it. What, what am I missing? Those, bra- the, like, modern web extensions don't allow arbitrary modification of HTTP payloads however you want, that they have limits now. Uh, it is possible that, that those limits are not so strict that, that, w- that what you just described can't be done. I don't actually know for sure. But it's also quite possible that web extensions and, like, Chrome's manifest v3 and things of that nature do not allow mutation in that fashion. Uh, precisely because it can be a security concern. It can be abused. Yeah. And, and so like, it's quite possible that you just simply can't do that right now. It makes sense. I, I do not know enough about browser security uh, at that level to, I mean, on the plugin level, I'm not, I, I have not built a, a browser plugin in a long time. So I don't know exactly what, what is allowed and it's not allowed. The world has gotten very interesting in the last, well, so the last seven to f- 15 years of browser plugins have been crazy, right? Like you used to have... yeah. Like NP API, which is the old Netscape plugin API, and then that kind of got. Obviously, there was ActiveX controls for a while on the Microsoft side, uh, and then you had Chrome created their their concept of a web extension. But f- uh, before that, Firefox had XUL, uh, which was extremely powerful and you could do just about anything. Uh, and then as Chrome kind of grew to take over the world, Safari became compatible with very similar style extensions, and then Safari moved away from that and created a different thing, and then. Firefox dropped XUL and moved to the Chrome style. And now everyone's kind of moved back towards this new thing. And there's now a W3C group called the Web Extensions API, which is a standard for web extensions that for across the different browsers, which is an interesting beast because the different browsers also have different capabilities deliberately because that's part of the way they differentiate themselves. The standard is, is it's fascinating. But like between the security concerns that have arisen and the performance concerns that have arisen around browsers, uh, browser extensions, like there's a constant push pull in that world. And that's kind of why that's what, where areas like uBlock have had a lot of challenges, like Safari's extension APIs and their content blocking APIs are much less flexible than Chrome's. And so the content blocking systems in Safari don't work as well, but Chrome's manifest v3 stuff restricts that. Uh, and it makes it look a lot more like Safari's, which is going to make ad blocking worse on the web. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of pushback about that. So it, it's it's kind of this open topic of debate across the entire browsing uh, industry for now. We don't know what the answer is, and it's going to probably be a while before we really know what the right balance truly is. Makes sense. And, and I, I knew about two years ago, like I knew about building plugins with that where you get content access you can get I mean, anything that is can render you can access with a plugin that that i knew that i wasn't sure whether you could actually do a like the actual request um beforehand and edit it it will be very interesting i mean a lot of these things are standardized with the uh, with the authentication header so you know being able to get you know, having privilege or have privileged plugins that actually have access to it to allow uh, third-party competitors to 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 embrace web in, in different ways and i'm pretty sure 
uh, IDPs potentially will be very interesting in, in, in having this level of access because not only one password, but like, you know, the one login, the Octas uh, uh, of the world will, will potentially benefit from being able to not having to, to have like crazy type of like external plugins that then talk to, to like naive plugins internally in the browsers to do things. Um, so there's one more topic that actually was interesting for me in, in the Apple WWC, which was a discovery account driven user enrollment. It sounds like Apple is trying to improve how they actually do uh, enrollment for BYOD and provide, I guess they're recognizing uh, that enterprise is becoming a significant part of their business. So being able to have people's own devices to sign into the corporate world without having to sacrifice security and or without, you know, uh, these users losing f complete uh, management or their, or the devices. So I, I watched the presentation and I thought it was very interesting. And one of the things that I found interesting was, I mean, you know, obviously they support IDPs through the authentication phase. They have a bunch of things, but it was interesting that it's limited access to the device. And it sounded like they're going to follow the same model that Google has with like, uh, with this sandbox environments where you can have a mail app and a mail for work app. So it, if they actually do that, that will make me very, very, very happy. I am always very hesitant or uh, enrolling my personal device into corporate. So I usually ended up with two cell phones, one for work and one for personal life. And, and the one thing that I did like about Android was that it will create its own partition, its own user, and you could have like two mail applications or you know, two Gmail applications, one for work, one for personal tool, you know, whatever other applications the, the system wanted to push on you. Uh, but those were sandboxed on a different uh, partition and they were using uh, the corporate and from the corporate side, because I'm a security person, and sometimes I have to enforce these things even if I don't want to do them myself, it's, okay, now the corporate can allow you to bring a, your own device, but the moment you leave, they can automatically delete all of, your, all of their content without sacrificing any of your personal usage, right? Like, so I felt that that was a, a, another interesting move in sort of the authentication field or MDM field that, that, that Apple brought uh, across. And, and overall my take, and I don't know what you guys think, but overall my take was that Apple is making significant steps, not only for customer, but also to become a better enterprise citizen uh, across corporations and providing these type of services. Yeah, Apple's been moving down that path for, for quite some time now, right? Like they have enterprise and device enrollments. You, like, you can buy Macs as an as a company and they're automatically enrolled even if you reformat them because when they talk to apple the serial number shows up as enrolled and it says hey you work for x company this is what the enrollment server is it's going to redirect you automatically so like they've definitely been making big inroads and in trying to maintain their user experience while accommodating the requirements of large-scale enterprises i'm i i'm of mixed opinion about this right like i think there's these concepts are in fundamental tension and like Apple is doing their best, but also sometimes these things are just not reconcilable. So like 
you've built this system that can do this, and that's great. And it's definitely an improvement, but like, for example, to your description of, of like, hey, we'd like to have two separate like conceptual partitions where never the twain shall meet and like when a wipe request comes in, it just wipes my set, the, the, the work session, then that's fine. That's fine and that is an improvement, but it doesn't actually, you also need the next step, which is like, well, what happens if a legal hold happens? Well, sorry, the, like the legal profession does not recognize the concept of logical entities within a physical device. That physical device is now theirs. That's not Apple's fault, but it is, it limits the utility in ways that people don't necessarily realize. They believe they, they have this separation now, but they don't because there is an impedance mismatch between the technical capability and the, the way the law or the way like we've culturally developed to actually like remediate what we perceive to be problems. I guess the, the second part I would say there is that while Apple's approaches here are generally pretty good, the most frustrating thing in the world about anything Apple does services-wise is that they have opaque failure modes that cannot be debugged and their enterprise stuff is the worst of all at that. So like when something goes wrong, there is no way to figure out why it went wrong or how to fix it. And I think Apple should spend maybe more time thinking about how to make that less of a problem and not worry so much about expanding their feature set until they make it either rock solid reliable or rock solid debuggable. And since rock solid reliable, as we know, is impossible because this is computers we're talking about, we need to make them they just vastly need to uh, improve the observability and debuggability of their systems by lay, well, I shouldn't say by lay people. I should say by administrators who are not themselves Apple employees. Like Apple actually has very nice things for installing special profiles that can get all sorts of instrumentation to upload to Apple. Basically feels like it goes into a black hole in most cases, right? Like you have a bug, you go and install this profile and you send stuff to Apple and then 18 months later, they closed the bug that you opened saying, yeah, it's probably fixed now. It's been two years. That's not what enterprises need. Enterprises need a way to actually resolve a problem. And if that is to work, it, work around it because Apple doesn't have the bandwidth to fix the underlying bug, that's fine. But to find the bug, we need the ability to observe the way the system actually operates. And Apple makes it very difficult to do that in their quest to, to provide a better user experience. But I think that serves them very poorly in this regard. No, that's fine. I mean, I, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you having to deal with a lot of IT security in previous jobs. I mean, you are 100% right. It is somewhat of a black hole when you actually go and complain. And Qradar, it's, I mean, you hear from normal developers. It's basically throwing uh, words at the wind. And maybe you get to hear something back if the wind turns back by some miracle. Now, with, with that said, your legal issue, it's irrelevant to Apple. Like that applies to every single mobile provider like and every single solution. Hence, like if you really care about that part, you have to have two devices. And then, legally speaking, like you will have to prove that you have not used your personal device for anything work-related, so it could also be in a legal hole, right? Cross-contamination, mostly in chat apps and stuff like that happens whether you like it or not. My problem with that is most of the apps that we're using nowadays, and this is where like I think legal is not caught up with technology and that all the syncing capabilities they have. Yeah, all I mean, all of the syncing capabilities that we have, all of the um, like most of the apps we use are cloud-based applications anyway. So why do you need the mobile devices? Like in the case of Slack, you have all of the logs. You don't need the device. Like you just go and check the logs. And same for mail, and same for 
almost literally every single app we use because they have sync capabilities. So most of the data is in the server. Now, if you have E2E, like actual encryption, then you need the key from the user if the user is willing to provide it. And yeah, you have you have specific cases where like if it's only the data is only decrypted in the device, okay, you need it. But for most of the corporate apps that actually support enterprise solution, they either have an escrow key or they have or they have ways to actually get in the data without even you getting the device. I think this sandboxing is in the good direction from a technical perspective. Legal, my my feeling is more like it's that legal needs to update themselves up to and they need to catch up with technology, not necessarily the other way around. But anyways, uh, regardless of that, I thought it was, I always liked WWC. I like to see, you know, what's coming. Linux and Polkit. So it sounds like there's been a interesting bug for the last, what, seven, eight years in Polkit that allows for a privilege escalation. And the bug, in a nutshell, basically incorrectly deals with an exception uh, in a way that basically uh, thinks that you're a root. And if you do it right, you ended up with a, with a root account. But that is in a nutshell. But uh, Robert, you actually shared this with us. Like, um, Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, sure. So I think you, your summary is pretty, pretty, pretty bang on. So um, there exists a system within certain distributions of Linux called Dbus, which is a an inter-process communication IPC uh, bus that allows, it exists primarily, I think, um, to allow graphical applications to communicate with um, other applications running on the machine. Now, often that will be, you know, some model view controller type thing where you have a, a view, which is your graphical thing, and it needs a mechanism to talk to some other component. Now, what's very interesting is... Um, one of the things you can attach to Dbus is a, I guess you'll call it a daemon called Polkit. It can do a number of things, but what it essentially does is provides you a mechanism to perform privileged operations over Dbus. A great example of this is, say, um, in Linux, normally if you want to monkey about with um, network configurations, you would do so in the in the console on the command line using a tool like ifconfig and ifconfig will let you do some things as a normal user and some things like say assigning a new ip address would normally require you to have root privileges or otherwise have capabilities that allowed you to operate as root in certain ways some analogy of this is required in the graphical user interface where users are, are less typically changing contexts right you're normally always interacting with your computer as rob uh, when you're working through a graphical interface. So Polkit exists to allow a number of things to happen. Um, but the most obvious one, to draw the analogy with the network stuff, is if you want to go make a network change, uh, maybe you'll get challenged for your username and password. And as you do that, you then you authenticate over Dbus with Polkit, and Polkit will then go perform the operation for you. The bug that was found was a um, UID reuse bug. So, And I'm remembering a little bit of this from yesterday. Essentially what happens is one of the checks it does to understand if you are who you say you are is the UID you are presenting as and the amount of time you have had that UID. This is kind of a faulty check because it's easy to have collisions in that space. And so there, an attack exists by sending and tearing down and sending again a number of connection requests. And it really takes very few apparently before you can kind of create a situation where you can execute things as root via Polkit. 
I think it's uh, it's interesting. One of the things I haven't had a chance to look into is how how broadly this might exist. I don't know how many. I don't know if, for example, non-graphical Linux environments, that is to say a, a server deployment versus a desktop deployment, I don't know how common it is to have something like Dbus or Polkit on those machines. I actually don't know either, but um, that's actually a good question. I mean, the, the remediation is to just up, update Polkit. The, the patch and stuff is out there, so it's not... Um, well, the patch and the packages are out there, out there. So anyone who's automatically updating their Linux distributions with security updates should should in, in should have them overall. Yeah, Dbus is part of the free desktop project. So I, and you know it ships with GNOME and other things, or GNOME depending on how you pronounce it. So I don't I don't know that it's I can see Dbus being used as a general purpose IPC in other spaces. I know I think Red Hat makes liberal use of Dbus for a lot of things. Doesn't mean they use Polkit, of course. I, I'm not sure how broadly this, how many different distributions might be impacted, but the remediation seems simple. So I can I can say that I'm currently running an Ubuntu 20.04 server. I just logged in to, to check really quickly, and there is a Dbus daemon and a Polkit D running on this machine, uh, and it is a non-graphical Excellent. server. So there you go. So, um, I mean, it kind of makes sense because there's a number of things that want to be able to do IPC, yeah, no, that makes sense. There's a number of things that want to do IPC. Started off as uh, enabling, you know, graphical toolkits, but obviously gets used more broadly. The advice for users continues to be, you know, update your machines. Have this conversation all the time. The best security control you can possibly have is just to be able to update in a reliable and consistent way. IPC mechanisms are always funny. Apple has had so many bugs related to mock ports as an IPC mechanism over the last well, we're now at 20 years of XNU, uh, actually, in the next few months. That's how long Mac OS, uh, well, Mac OS 10, well, I guess it was OS 10, then became Mac OS 10, and now is Mac OS again. But yeah, it's been 20 years since that kernel was uh, officially released, March March 24th, 2001. I think that was OS 10, 10.0. So I think what what's super interesting is um, whether or not whether or not common container orchestration frameworks appropriately restrict dbus ipc within their namespaces that is to say what set of policy uh do you have to get wrong for somebody to be able to use this as part of a container escape because i think a lot of that a lot of the thinking around network namespace and a lot of those constraints is focused on you know typical tcp ip stack um possibly not because i think this still uses the sockets interface right but over with some kernel IPC theft. So what is your theory that if, if this was exploitable, you could potentially escape the container and get root? Well, arguably any arguably any um, Linux kernel privesque is uh, a vector for escaping from a container. If you go and look, it really depends on how the IPC is controlled and presented and if that fits into one of the existing sort of namespace or namespace C group set comp type uh, containment mechanisms. Um, if it's a thing you have to explicitly allow, then you know you're making that trade-off, um, and you've explicitly allowed for a communication mechanism outside of your container to the local system, which is generally speaking an anti-pattern. That said, the number of people in the world that run container orchestration systems with um, the equivalent of you know allow all because it just made their containers work is. The number there is pretty high. I, I don't believe you. You're talking about people running with defaults on? Complete I know. nonsense. Surprising, right? Yeah. 
I always tell people that containers are as good as, and they're always one escape away or one pre-escalation away from, you know, breaking your entire entire model. Uh, they're great. I, I'm not saying they're not, but like um, they're as strong as the weakest link, which in a lot of senses is, you know, container escape, a kernel exploit, or a pre-vesk, which some of the times could be the same thing. Isn't an interesting bug. I mean, the fact that it's been there for seven years. Mm. Uh, I, I, I always, when I see these bugs for such a long time, I always wonder, like, hey, has this been being exploited in the wild before or not? Yeah, I think Polkit's been Polkit would have been a great uh, target for anyone looking at right to to go um, spend a lot of time. One of the reasons it existed for so long, I think, is because um, it is a timing sensitive attack. And those things are kind of kind of more difficult to fuzz. More difficult might not be the right term. They are less often fuzzed because they are a dramatically slower type of operation to try and inspect than, say, just fuzzing normal code paths or fuzzing file formats. So yeah, I uh, I think that's probably why it laid dormant for so long. And it would not surprise me to find out that this has been used in the wild previously because you know I think Polkit. As uh, as Paul just pointed out, is probably fairly ubiquitous and fairly privileged. Yeah, I mean, if if it is ubiquitous in Ubuntu, uh, I mean, you could stay on there on its own. Then it's one of the most used distros out there by a lot of people. So that on itself, I've already give you a pretty interesting uh, number of potential victims. Staying on open source, I'm really, you know we're talking containers. Um, uh, you actually shared this with us, Robert. And it's very interesting. So apparently, I mean, Kubernetes is getting a lot of traction. So like anything else in the industry that it gets a lot of traction, it also attracts bad people. And it sounds like um, there's a bunch of cases where there's been a, a bunch of uh, crypto mining or malware being launched or orchestrated thanks to container exploitation. I'm sorry, not containers, or like Kubernetes exploitation. Yeah, there is. It's one of the interesting things. I spend a lot of time talking to people in industry about the security of containers and the security of Kubernetes. Security people almost almost exclusively tend to focus on the the likelihood of a container escape. This specter of um, well, if I'm you know if I can if there's a kernel vulnerability maybe or some uh, similarly uh, overly privileged thing like Polkit. You know, I can, I can, maybe I can exploit that and get out of a container. And, and, you know, that's what we tend to focus on. That's a very valid space, but it's also kind of a space that we understand how to control. We understand how to run containers reasonably well isolated. Like if you take almost a, a, you know, out of the box, um, a fairly standard pod security policy for, for Kubernetes, you're going to find it very hard to break out of that container and do anything meaningful, even running as root. It's certainly non-trivial. Now, what becomes very interesting is when you look at this second dimension, which is um, large-scale orchestrators like Kubernetes are very complex by by design and by definition. And what's interesting is um, crypto miners and malware organizations have started in the last year targeting Kubernetes deployments through really two different mechanisms. Uh, one is to uh, go through a vulnerable application, again, patch your applications. Um, and another is to look for um, misconfigured clusters. Now, both 
both of these things really net out to um, you need to make sure that your systems are deployed and configured in a secure way. Right now, there is, uh, I think it was TNT or Unit 42. Uh, I think, yeah, Unit 42 released some research around ransomware groups targeting Kubeflow. So Kubeflow is uh, TensorFlow on top of Kubernetes, which is a machine learn end-to-end machine learning framework. Um, Kube can be configured to allow things like GPU pass-through. So um, you can run Kubernetes, you run uh, Kubeflow on top of it, and then your data scientists can go and deploy Kubeflow jobs and go do the machine learning thing and gather a lot of interesting data. It's kind of custom-built hardware for crypto mining. So, uh, you know, uh, some bad actors were going out and just looking for examples of the Kubeflow dashboard, you know, nothing, nothing more complex than a showdown search, finding uh, Kubeflow dashboards exposed to the internet and going and accessing them and just launching, uh, launching tasks that looked a lot like legitimate workflows. So they launched their own containers, but their containers were built using the standard TensorFlow images. So if you were just looking at like a get pods or something, um, it would look legitimate. Uh, earlier in the year, there was a case of another um, malware group that were again, just searching the internet for anything exposing TCP 10.250, which is the the port, the standard TCP port of the kubelet. In Kubernetes, you have a control plane and a data plane. The data plane is where your containers run, containers run inside of pods. And the thing that makes sure that for each computer that is in your data plane, it is running the pods it's supposed to is a, a piece of software called a kubelet. Um, kubelet exposes a RESTful interface, um, is supposed to only operate within, within the network. But if you misconfigure your, your network where you have Kubernetes deployed um, and you expose the kubelet to the world, it is configured to not use uh, authentication or authorization by default um, it is configured in that way for reasons that I won't comment on here. But it is the case that if you accidentally expose it to the internet, uh, a bad guy can send commands direct to the kubelet to launch their own workloads on those particular nodes. The kubelet can also talk to the kube API and can so can then find out about adjacent nodes and you can go launch stuff on those as well. So that's pretty ugly. The third type of attack that I've seen in the last six months is... Um, kind of more typical, fits into the generalized version of an escape. Uh, attacker finds a bad Apache, Nginx, whatever, exploits it into the container. Um, but instead of then trying to break out of the container like via escalating through root or something, which is what we spend a lot of time talking and thinking about, they just uh, they lift the, the secret from the container file system. Um, all containers uh, pretty much have a... Um, a Kubernetes secret, like the service account token that they can use to go talk to the Kube API and other things. Um, but quite often, if they're finding themselves on a cluster where you know Nginx wasn't kept up to date or whatever, which is a very easy thing to do in a, a cluster, likelihood is the cluster isn't being very well maintained. If RBAC principles are not set appropriately, uh, role-based access control in Kubernetes is what controls uh, what any actor in the system can do, whether it is a a container or a an admission controller or a, a real user. RBAC's hard to get right in Kube, so a lot of people turn it off. So even if you're in a Kubernetes uh, deployment where you have walled everything off appropriately from the network, if you haven't set up your RBAC properly, someone who takes over a container without some super special kernel exploit 
has a lot of opportunity to start doing things within your cluster. And when what they're looking to do is just go and deploy workloads and run them because they want to go do crypto mining or whatever else, they can do it. They can do it without needing any, like it's not a vulnerability in Kubernetes, it's not a vulnerability in the kernel. It was just the fact that, you know, some configuration was missed. Now, what I think is interesting is that, you know, all three examples they gave of being observed in the wild and have all happened in the last six months. So I think there's a lot more attention being given in this space than there was, you know, a year ago. No, that's actually very interesting. The, the one thing that I'll comment is scenarios where I have done pen testing or testing in general or recommended how to set it up. It's to your point, you know, we, we talk about a lot about previous collations, but I mean, my point there is like it, you just want, you know, one vulnerability away from it, it will happen as long as you stay patched, you know, you're, you're okay. Like if, if you actually maintain the window opportunity, Kubernetes by default, and you can correct me wrong here, Robert, but you're a little bit more of an expert nowadays. My view and my experience in the last, you know, two or three years has been that it has been built thinking of ease of use for developers and ease of deployment. So by default, the network policies, name faces can talk to each other. So you don't need a lot of the times uh, an escalation or escape because the moment you actually get a footprint in a single container, to your point, you can talk to the APIs, you can start network scanning and you're going to find something that is of interest. And it's going to allow you to like get deeper into the network. When I was doing Pentest, that was my first thing. Like I would literally dump NMAP or something like that and I would start scanning the network and see what was out there. Uh, a lot of the times they are like, the, yeah, you couldn't access the API, or, but you ended up with like, you know, the, this network being connected to the deployment. So you ended up finding a Jenkins or, or something that allowed you to like continue to orchestrate and even escape fully from like the entire environment because things were connected. Anything is shareable. Most people don't realize that you might have two namespaces, but they can actually see each other if you don't have any specific network policy by default. I'm, I'm completely not surprised. I also don't, you know, when you start playing around those, those weekends that you start playing out with Shodan, there's a huge amount of like TensorFlow dashboards and TensorFlow, like uh, if you search with Shodan for like any specifics of many of these uh, orchestration toolings to deploy machine learning uh, models, there is plenty of them exposed on the internet. Like, so I'm, I'm not surprised at all to see this because data scientists want to test and deploy the stuff. They're not sec DevOps experts. They just want to test their environment. And a lot of the times they're not production environments or testing environments, but, but that's the, your footprint into the network. And my comment about this namespace is not being separated, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the times there's like, yeah, you have your testing namespace, you have your production namespace. Guess what? You get a footprint in one, you ended up uh, with another one. I'm, I'm not surprised at all, right? Like at the end of the day, this is just a computers. This is a new trendy product. You're going to see a lot of them. So you're going to see people have used them. It's either because it's trendy and you have a lot of research being done or because criminals see that it's a huge platform to attack and potentially make money out of it. So yeah, that is what it is, right? Yep, I completely agree. You know, generally speaking, um, you mentioned a bias towards kind of easy use. Uh, yeah, it's true. Um, Kub does not deploy secure by default, partially because that term means different things to different people. You know, I guess they would say they, they deploy um, working by default um, and allow people to tune it downwards. And, and, I'm, I'm, and don't get me wrong, I am not in disagreement with their model. I just think that it has consequences of doing so because most people don't pay attention. This, this 
easiness of deploying and this easiness of going from your from your uh, what's it called uh, micro mini cube to uh, like an actual cube and people tend to copy paste their deployments and they don't even care. They go from like, oh, I'm testing in my laptop in my safe space. I'm going to do exactly the same thing in production or in testing. And they don't realize that there are tremendous consequences of doing so. And it's not their fault. And it is at the same time, right? So this is one of the, I think, last time when we have a discussion about whether a library or a framework is responsible for security. Cube actually nowadays, I mean, five years ago, they didn't have security features. Now they do. So they're there and it's up to the user to actually use them, right? So I cannot tell them. I mean, there's, there's still plenty of room for improvement and we could have this whole discussion about secure by default, not secure by default, et cetera, et cetera. Like which, you know, where you go between UX and, and security. But besides that, Plenty of these features are there. I will say that it's somewhat of the user responsibility to correctly send them up and actually care to start in a service in a secure manner. But because it's so easy, because there's literally zero friction from go from like development to testing to production, you will end up with a tremendous amount of these things being like very pure, poorly deployed. Yep, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, I think that's a, a really... Uh really sensible statement anyways we're i think we're paul it's paul ron's time what are you gonna bitch about today paul i think we i think we might have gotten a, a an early version of this uh, already in this podcast about observability in, in applications uh but if we want to do a little more there i can say as the two of you know, and our many, many, many listeners uh, should be aware, uh, I am generally quite bought into Apple's ecosystem. However, just because I use their tools does not mean I find their tools. Well, give me a second. Give me a second. He's saying this while I'm watching over Zoom with an Apple Watch, and which seems to be the very expensive version of the Apple Watch, an iPhone, and a pair of like AirPods. Exp- Airport Max on a Mac laptop, like very bought into the system. Like maybe like if Apple made underwear, you will probably be using it already. I mean, never say never. Uh, but yeah, so like just because I utilize their tools doesn't mean I, I consider those tools immune from criticism, right? Like I use the tools that I consider to be the best for my use cases, which is not to say that I believe everyone's use cases are mine either. However, there is a consistent and long-running issue I have had with Apple. And it is this function of observability. So like Apple has been building more and more things that are meant to work seamlessly. And those things require like online services, like iCloud, uh, like continuity and handoff features, and all sorts of like, so there's all sorts of gossip protocols that happen between Bluetooth and establishing dynamic Wi-Fi direct uh, connections and all sorts of other things just constantly across all my devices. And they use that sort of stuff to seamlessly make it so that when I walk into a room and I, I say, hey, S-I-R-I, which I'm not going to say because I'm concerned about what might happen if I say it out loud right now. If I say that, then like the 15 different devices that can hear it rapidly talk to each other and decide which one is going to service it. One and only one. That's great. But when things like that fail... Apple gives you no tools whatsoever to understand what has happened and what you should do about it. 
like your iCloud sync doesn't work. Your photos say that they're uploading one photo forever because something has happened in the iCloud photo library upload. Your uh, sec policy D on your Mac is taking 100% CPU for hours at a time. Why? Who knows? Uh, and it's very, very frustrating that Apple has built systems of massive complexity, but made it opaque to even people who need to be able to debug it. Like, I find it endlessly frustrating that the only person who can ever solve my problems is an Apple employee. But also, I can't get a hold of Apple employees. Like, I mean, the three of us know people. We have a we have certain back channels available to us for, for some things. But like, even in that regard, like, a bug that's affecting me on macOS, I, I I don't know how to get it fixed, right? Like if I go to if, if there's a problem in Chrome, I can go file a bug, Chrome people work on it, it gets resolved. Like that generally that that process works, and like things obviously get fixed and things get improved in macOS, but the the mechanisms by which that happened are so opaque by cultural design in Apple, and I think that serves them extraordinarily poorly. Like it is endlessly frustrating to know that if I have a bug, that the right answer to, to, to it is don't do that until they fix it, which may happen next release, but it's more likely to take like a year. Uh, or maybe the other answer is it's gotten wedged in some state that Apple never considered because frankly, Apple's testing is really not as good as it should be. And because it's gotten wedged in this unusual, strange state, the correct solution is don't ever restore from that backup that contains the last 15 years of your life. Uh, and there's no way to extract pieces of the backup because well, that would not be simple and Apple wants it to be simple. So you should obviously restore from backup. But if you do that, then none of your stuff will work. So now you're stuck in a world where nothing can ever work for you ever again. Like I don't enjoy that part of the world that like everything works perfectly until you enter the nightmare hellscape from which there is no escape. Like it should not be a binary world. We should not live in a perfect Apple ecosystem or terrible like blasted hellscape. We should have some mechanism for us to extract ourselves out of it. And it is important to me that at some point Apple internalized the idea that that is good and necessary. Oh, I, I, I agree a hundred percent with you. Uh, this is a reason why every time I buy a new computer, a new phone, I start from scratch. I, I, I run through those, you know, recovery backups circle of hell and I run through many of these issues and I'm just like, which I don't like to take this option because I'm literally not taking advantage of, of the benefits of the platform, but it's sort of my way of like not dealing with it. Um, I'm also heavily an Apple user and I completely agree with rant. I also think that a lot of it, if you start thinking about it, is they have a very, they're moving into this agile world with sort of like a waterfall development life cycle from that inherited from, you know, the seventies and the eighties and the nineties when they were doing these things. But a lot of their services are cloud services nowadays. So they should be having more of an agile, like very quick, highly responsive, uh, software iteration and, and you don't see it. And, and they're releasing almost every, you know, Every month or every year, they have new versions, you know, depending on how, you know, like how do you judge quote unquote releasing. And I'm pretty sure they actually do solve a lot of bugs. I'm pretty sure like, you know, like when you file K raters and 
if significant amount of people file them, things will get fixed. Security bugs get fixed relatively soon. So I don't think they totally suck, right? Like, I don't think you're saying that either. No. But there's some things, some, there, there's some aspects of the platform that they have chosen to hide and create this huge abstraction layer from the normal users of, you know, mom and pops that when it comes to people like us, instead of giving us choices, it completely removes all of the choices and it makes sometimes use the environment so painful that, that it just, it is what it is. I mean, a lot of people could tell us like, oh, go move to Linux or whatever. Like, no, I don't want to do that. I actually want to be able to solve a problem in the platform that I am at, whether, you know, if it was Windows or it was Linux or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, every platform has a set of trade-offs. This, this platform, unfortunately, has, like, among other trade-offs that exist, it has this one. And this is one I believe they can and should fix. Because it's not just like, oh, I want technical power users to have the capability to debug. It is that the world is larger than just Apple employees. And if I have the capability of, to, of, of debugging and isolating, I can provide better feedback that allows them to resolve problems in a more timely fashion and with less work on their side. So I'm happy and they're happy. It's a force multiplier for everyone. Like there's no reason not to provide this visibility. Like yes, there's investment up front, but it's going to pay back on the back end many, many times over. It's it's foolish not to operate in this fashion. I guess the last thing I'll I'll say on this before I'm done with my rant is that like I absolutely agree. Like Apple obviously they do fix bugs, they add new features. They're generally good about responding uh, to security issues in a timely fashion. Not always, but most of the time they're quite good at it. They do have a testing or they have a software development policy, which I, I've never worked inside of Apple, but my external visibility and my limited contacts within suggest to me that they generally have a significant challenge with quality and quantity of testing. That's not everywhere. They're a very large company, but they have an issue where that becomes challenging in certain cases. And in that challenge, they, I mean, you've heard me say this before, which is that I don't believe you can refactor systems without quality testing because you don't understand what the surface area of your own application is. Apple has seen this happen. I mean, it's been a few years now, but the in, in macOS 10.10, they released a replacement for, um, uh, what the heck was it called? Lookup DE. Uh, no, no. It, yeah, the, the DNS caching utility that they had. I forget what it's called. Yeah, at any rate, they, wrote, they, they had an item, they replaced it with what they called Discovery D. Discovery D was such a disaster that they actually rolled it back and, and started shipping the previous version after, like, I think one or two patches inside of 10.10. It is my understanding that this was because they basically had no test surface area. They rewrote an entire subsystem of macOS without knowing what it did. Like, that's bad. And it's the sort of thing that Apple appears to still have some issues with in some parts of its business. So like, these are things they need to improve. Like, and that's hard. You're an enormous, you're the world's most valuable company and you have hundreds of thousands of employees and it's very, very difficult to like up-level yourself across. Uh, but also people expect more and faster all the time. And the only way you can do that is by making sure you don't repeat your mistakes. Yeah, and, and and things will fail. But to your point, like if you do have a, a, a test-driven sort of development lifecycle, it, it 
you could you can prevent some of these things and i completely agree with you because i mean there there are a huge company microsoft went through the same thing i think every single big company or large enterprise you're going to have products that are great and you're going to have products that sucks you're going to have security you know like you're going to have team development teams that are great and development teams that are not ideal but if you have this sort of like standardization across like hey this is the type of the, the type of development we do this is the type of testing that we require i think you can significantly reduce or or you can significantly improve the overall quality of what you build it does it might it might it, does, it doesn't actually mean that it's going to be a good product but at least it's going to pass the tests and is you know at least going to work at somehow in a good way and and the more apple grows i think the more we have seen this type of issues and i think to your point it's 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 due because there's some very basic principles that the faster they grow the more noticeable the more noticeable they actually are are becoming to be for the external world. In any case, that was a pretty good rant. I mean, you 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 seem to have plenty of rants every every week to magically come up with with them. Now, eh, oh well, I think we're done. We don't have any more news this week. So, it's it's been as it always is. It's been awesome talking to you, uh, Paul. You're going on a vacation. You're on PTO right now, and you're not gonna be talking to us in the podcast for a couple of weeks. Well, actually. Uh, four or five weeks so best of luck man enjoy it uh, you, you deserve it thank you I assume that I, I can't wait to hear who you replace me with that's a good question um, probably something better than all of us well that's a low bar <laughs> yeah, that's a tune in next week kind of thing yeah that's low bar that's what I'm saying it's not going to be that difficult right uh, I, I will say that uh, we might need to get somebody expert in crypto or not well, that's, that's good. E- e- either they can do a thing or they can't. So, you know, it's 50-50. Yeah. Clear, clearly, we cannot get anybody named Paul. We know your rule. There should only be one Paul. Yeah, while you guys were talking about Paul Kit, I have to admit, I did not like that name either. Um, it's, I think they should actually have to call it Policy Kit. Um, like, Paul is taken. That, 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 that syllable is mine. No one else gets to use it. It's, it's P-O-L-K, dude. It's not P. Oh, you. Well, so it's Paul Kit, P-O-L-K-I-T, right? But like P-O-L is pronounced Paul just like P-A-U-L. So like I'm claiming I own that syllable. Okay, you, you, so you own the syllable and some of the drifts uh, and the deltas that are, okay, I, I get it. Uh, fine. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, a, a, anybody who wants to disagree with me, I'll... S- and for full disclosure, people and the listeners, I am Pablo. So my second name is Pablo. So whatever you say, not even applies to the three of us. Yeah, so it's mine. I, I, that's I, the I most American. That's the, that's the most American land grabby approach to linguistics I've ever seen. It's like, well, it kind of sounds similar, and yeah, no, that's I'm, know, I'm completely comfortable with that. I mean, to, to take it to the next American level, I will say that like, were I to. Uh, own or support gun ownership. I guess I'd have to do something with that too to make sure that I protected what was mine. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is going to a place that I do not like it. Um, <laughs> anyways. Oh, I mean, I suggest cutting that out entirely. So on that, on that note, before we actually uh, say goodbye for this week, I actually just published uh, in Twitter uh, a question for our listeners in the 
three security buddies, Twitter, to actually ask us like, hey, what do you like? What do you don't like? Is there any topics you would like us to hear talk about? We actually are, we'll be very thrilled if we actually hear uh, from you guys. So please contact us and let us know whether, you know, if there's something you hate, something you love, something you would like to hear more about. Uh, who, who would you like us to replace Paul with for the next couple of weeks? Anything. Um, in any case, like I said, uh, cheers, Paul. Cheers, Robert. Have a good week. Thanks. Thank you very much. Catch you, catch you soon. Catch you on the flip side. Bye. Well, that was fun.